Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to have with me Dr. Catherine Dolan to tell us all about her book titled Breakfast Cereal, A Global History. It's just come out, um, published by Reaction in 2023, and as you might suggest from the title, it is the long and distinguished and in a lot of ways, surprising history of breakfast cereal. This is obviously going to be quite a fun interview. It was a fascinating book that took us through where breakfast cereals actually come from, both the actually ancient ones and the more modern technicolored ones that we might eat in many mornings in many places in the world, Um, and explain that these things are actually more related to each other than I certainly thought. Um, and helps us explain a whole bunch of things, like why are they so technicolored? And why are they in so many places around the world? So Catherine, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about your book. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into breakfast cereal, thankfully not literally, I don't like milk in my hair. Could you please introduce yourself and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure. Uh, so I'm Catherine Dolan. Uh, I go by Casey. Um, so please feel free to call me Casey. And I this started, so I'm an uh, American literature professor, and I usually study literature. Uh, but the angle that I take for literature is through food studies. And so how are stories being told about food? And how does food appear in stories? And one of the examples I always give, actually, when I'm explaining my little angle and my little research focus is thinking about the dining scenes in the the Godfather or something, right? And how food is actually so important sometimes in stories. Um, so I was thinking of doing a research project on breakfast cereal as this kind of late 19th century health food movement with Kellogg and Post and, you know, all these sanitariums. And I, I might have seen the movie, The Road to Wellville or something like that, and then felt like reading the book. And of course, if anyone hasn't seen that or read that, they are wacky. It's a wacky story. Um, and then how the 1960s counterculture was also thought of as granola. So there was granola at this one period of time and granola at this other period of time. I was like, what connected those two periods of time? Uh, so it was going to be a purely academic article. article, uh, And then just as I started doing research, it just became so much more and so much more colorful and so much more fun. And then I started, I, I, look, I found reaction and I thought what a fun idea it would be to do one of these kind of introduction to kind of books instead of, you know, um, just an article that would end up in a journal. So yeah, that was, um, you know, if you think about it, how is it that the 1960s was, you know, hippies are called granola or something? Where does this come from? And so that was how I got started. Pretty reasonable place to get started, I think. I think a lot of books come from kind of, hang on a second, why? Right, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, and we'll try and answer that and many other serial questions um, as we go through. But starting, I suppose, at the earliest point, going chronologically as far back as we can, um, before we get to the technicolored stuff that comes in the <laughs> brightly colored boxes, how did cereal and porridge in ancient times impact civilization? Right. Uh, it's basically essential. It You know, what we think of as civilization and what we developed agriculture and all that kind of stuff came from breakfast porridges. Um, Every region pretty much in the world has its porridge. They all seem to have developed as we think at the moment. Everything changes, of course, as we learn. Um, But 
developed about 10,000 years ago. Uh, for example, in Mesopotamia, in the Fertile Crescent, there were the eight founder crops they started planting, uh, which included barley and two ancient forms of wheat, einkorn and emmer wheat. And so these about, and, and people were planting them and, and eating them. And that's how people started agriculture, modern agriculture and stayed put and started cities and towns and villages and things like that. Um, and roughly about 8,000 years ago, also in the Fertile Crescent, this is where a bread wheat came out, which is basically the wheat we use today. And that was a blend, a hybrid of emmer wheat and an early goat grass. And they kind of hybridized together and became the wheat that we now think of. So that started there. Um, off in Asia, they were also starting to develop rice as and making that into congees, like a porridge, a rice-based porridge. Um, and that became a way that they could have their societies and their culture and everyone can kind of become sedentary and work on those kinds of things and develop, you know, what we think of as civilizations. Uh, and the same thing is happening in the Americas with corn, um, maize, corn, and uh, developing that out of teosinte and hybridizing that so that you can't actually grow corn without human intervention, actually, it turns out. So that domesticated itself to be with us. And, uh, of course, corn developed all these uh, Mesoamerican civilizations. Uh, and again, roughly 10,000 years ago. Uh, so, yeah, everything we think of in terms of how civilization developed was because of these cereal grains. And um, one of the interesting things I noticed about this book and... Um, it was something I thought about in terms of just the porridge part was before was the need of a pot, you know, the, the need of a ceramic bowl to, to cook things and, and cooking fires and things like that. Without those, that's basically the Neolithic revolution right there. Like that's what turned us from quote unquote hunter gatherer societies into uh, agricultural societies. We were actually having a pot before that you would have to have, you couldn't have just had breakfast when you woke up, you would have had to have, hunted breakfast or gathered your breakfast or, you know, gone out and, and gotten the foods that you would then eat. You, there was nowhere to store it. There was nowhere to keep it away from predators or uh, scavengers or other kinds of animals or people or whatever. Um, so it was the development of storage, you know, storage containers, cooking containers, pots, those kinds of things that really uh, is what obviously had to develop in order for breakfast, cereal, the, the porridge kind of breakfast cereal to take off. And once porridge took off, I mean, that's solid good calories, energy, good, you know, rich carbohydrates that could keep laborers laboring in that, you know, what, de what develops the pyramids and all these kinds of things. So that, I think, in a lot of ways makes a very good case for kind of why cereal is important um, way earlier than... Why? Right. But I admit that I wasn't really expecting the book to start with cereals and porridges. And as soon as I realized why I wasn't expecting that, I felt kind of dumb about it. And then I turned the page over and was like, oh, I'm not the only one who is also not necessarily linked these things together because I had not thought about the ancient porridges and cereals as being related to breakfast cereal as we have it today because the ancient things are hot and breakfast cereal now is cold. And I felt sort of dumb. I'm like, oh, but they're still the same thing, right? It, yeah, the same grains, wheat yeah, but, usually, or oat or rice, yeah. But it does seem like a pretty big change. So how did that happen? Sure. And this is where the, the kind of obvious, this is the cereal we're talking about, kind of <laughs> gets started. It, the porridge chapter was actually a fairly late addition as I was researching the book, Um because it really was just not what you automatically think of. Uh, and as I was going back and forth with my editor, they were like, well, what about, you know, and I'm talking about oatmeal even, and I'm talking about modern day warm porridges, but they were like, but what about the development of that? And that really is a kind of a, a novel thing to have researched there. Um, but the cereal that we're all thinking about and the, the boxed cereal and the grocery store and the supermarkets, that had an actual... Like it's it, it's really hard to pinpoint porridges because they're just they're so ancient that, you know, I say roughly 10,000 years ago. And that's about as good as we can do uh, with actual in a box breakfast cereal, you know, the cold stuff. I can pinpoint that that's 1863. And that's in the U.S. in a place uh, called Danville, New York. A man called James Caleb Jackson was 
had he had been sick and had kind of you know kind of digestive complaints and he went to one of these sanitariums and it and they had a very strict diet as part of it and and he was doing the water cure which was uh, a movement where you would drink lots of water and take showers and baths and and they would draw out the toxins from you in these different bathing techniques and um and of course you always ate really really healthily and didn't drink any alcohol and um etc and and wouldn't eat processed sugar and things like that so he went through that uh the the water cure and it worked he it it helped him and he, he regained his health and he became a total convert and so he came to New York where he lived. And he said, I want to do one of these. I want to start my own. And um, so he called his the house on the hillside. And um, he, and, and part of these health spas was to have very healthy diets and the people that would go to them. And there is a tendency for these unwell people to be very wealthy white people and very popular and famous and stuff. But actually, Kellogg himself wasn't, Jackson himself wasn't. These were just normal people that went for their own health. Um, but so he, Jackson, developed a cereal to, to be eaten at his health spa, health spa as part of his overall practice. And it was called granula, and um, which sounds a lot like granola. And I will explain why it sounds a lot like granola. Um, and so the way he made granola was he took a large flour wafer, so a big kind of shallow cake or something and he uh baked it twice baked it and then they he broke it into really small little nuggets um so kind of like a tiny tiny little weedabix or something and um so it was that that is actually the first ready to make ready to eat breakfast cereal the, the first cold ready to eat breakfast cereal so 1863 but the problem with jackson's invention was that you couldn't eat it <laughs> actually it was you had to soak it overnight in either water or milk to make it palatable. So this was not going to be the success. You know, this would never sell in a grocery store or anything. But for his spa, it worked. It was it was something that people were willing to tolerate and eat for breakfast. And of course, the cooks and stuff had soaked it overnight. And so it was it was more or less palatable. But it was never the, the popular option. But John Harvey Kellogg and Ellen White and the some Seventh-day Adventists that would go on to develop the Battle Creek Sanitarium, um, they actually went to this Danville spa to check it out and see what they were doing and get some ideas for their own place. And Kellogg had this granula and appreciated the idea behind it so much that when he went back and de- when they developed the Battle Creek Sanitarium and he got to fiddle around in his experimental kitchen, he made a version of his own and he also baked, you know, twice baked these uh, wheat wafers, broke them up into little biscuits, you know, little nugget shapes. And, uh, and his was a little bit better. Um, it didn't have to go to soak overnight. He basically, he, you know, I always picture uh, Jackson's version as just cardboard or something. I, I can't imagine this cereal like actually working, but um, his was a little bit better. The problem was he was calling it granula and Jackson, of course, had developed granola. And so he had to worry about litigation and being sued. And so he changed the name from granola to granola. So that was the first granola that was developed. But it still was not the kind that we would picture in terms of granola. Um, it, It was still a bit bland and you needed to soak it, not for overnight, but for a while for it to be in any way, something you would want to eat. Um, and basically it, it ate like, it ate like something healthy, right? It didn't eat like something tasty. Um, but that really is where things got started. Jackson invented this idea and then Kellogg kind of ran with it. So obviously I have to ask more about Kellogg because- if, uh, Obviously, yeah. <laughs> right, if we know nothing about current breakfast cereals, uh, that's still a name that's going to be quite familiar and he's already come up in the story. So kind of how big a deal was Kellogg actually, given that in a lot of senses today, it looks like it could just be branding? Right, right. Um, actually, John Harvey Kellogg is the figure when it comes to cold breakfast cereals. Uh, he, it, nothing would happen without him because obviously the Jackson invention wasn't going to go very far. Uh, the branding comes around from his brother, W.K. Kellogg or Will Keith Kellogg. Um, but John Harvey is the one that makes breakfast cereal into what we think of in this package uh, as, as, you know, as we think of it now. Um, 
he so he invent he he adapted the granola and created the granola out of it and he that was something he just served at his sanitarium then he also went on to fiddle and he, they had this experimental kitchen at the sanitarium and he was very proud of it um, he was a self-aggrandizer. He might not have been the marketing genius that his brother was, but his sanitarium and, and setting that all up and being the lord of his domain there was very, very important to him, obviously. Um, and in the experimental kitchen, it was himself, John Harvey, uh, and Will Keith, and John Harvey's wife, Ella Eaton Kellogg. And the three of them worked together on all these different recipes, um, fake meat products, because um, Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians, um, all kinds of, you know, some breakfast cereals, uh, things that would, you know, for all the different meals and stuff. But of course, the breakfast cereals are the ones that historically became so significant. So they fiddled and fiddled and fiddled. And by 1894, John Harvey Kellogg actually patents the flaked cereals and process of preparing same. And that, so flaked cereals, if, they, if that sounds familiar to you, that's cornflakes, right? So that's where cornflakes come from. And cornflakes is the first of the boxed cereals that takes off, that is the thing that people start thinking about. Um, what started was the patients, visitors to the sanitarium could then buy the product to take home or they could order it via mail when they got home and they wanted to keep up with the diet that they had started eating at the, at the sanitarium. Um, it wasn't really a grocery store kind of an item. It was more of a specialty market, you know, almost like you would imagine a health food store nowadays or something like that. Um, then what <laughs> the interesting thing here and the, the second big name in the history. So definitely Kellogg is the guy that starts everything and makes it so famous and presidents went to the sanitarium and ate the breakfast cereal there. Uh, Taft is the, one of the American presidents that went there. The Rockefellers went there. I think Mark Twain went there, you know, just everyone's going to these health spas. Um, and, and the sanitarium is like the one to go to. Um, but one of the people that goes there is someone that was very, very sick. And it, uh, once again, the, the sanitarium, the, these health spas and the diet there really helped and, and made him feel a lot better. Um, C.W. Post. So if that name is ringing any bells, Post as in Post Cereal. Um and post cereal happens because CW Post it, it has such a good experience at the sanitarium. And the Kellogg's, and this is where John Harvey, so John Harvey was the mind behind it, but he wasn't the marketer behind it. Um, and so John Harvey was so proud of his product and so proud of what he was doing that he invited everyone to, to go through his kitchen and, and see what they were doing and how and all this. So Post went and he was so happy with how healthy he felt after spending time at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And this, it cracks me up because how, how people's brains work. But the first thing he thought to do was to steal their idea. <laughs> you know, all of this worked great for me. I clearly should steal it and then make a lot of money off of it. Um, but And that's almost exactly what he did. Um, he went to the sand. He... Um, Good, got as much information as he could from their kitchen. And then he started a health spa right almost right across the street called La Vida Inn for one thing. And so he started across town, almost across town rival, um, almost instantly. And then he developed post cereal and he started selling a flaked cereal of his own and he put it in boxes and he sold it, it um, you know, in stores. And that is where W.K. Kellogg went up to John Harvey and said, wait, we can't let this happen. How dare he get the money from this product that we have developed and we created and made it into a thing that people might actually be interested in. And the brothers fought back and forth for a long time because W.K. said, clearly, we should start a company, a, a big company that, that you know, sells these on a larger scale rather than just kind of this small health food scale kind of a market. And, uh, and John Harvey was a purist and didn't want to, to do that. And WK eventually won, obviously, obviously, because, because there are boxes of Kellogg's cereal all over the place. Um, and one of the things they fought over tooth and nail was the amount of sugar to add to it. So the cereals that we eat that we know of now obviously are much, much sweeter than anything anyone would ever tell you to eat as a health food. But and, and they've become even more so since like the mid 20th century. But even in the time of their first creation, 
there was a change from the stuff you would eat at one of these health spas and then the stuff that gets marketed to people in a grocery store. And the WK rightly said, and CW Post as well, were saying, no one's going to buy this if if it tastes as bland as it really tastes. People, of course, that are at the health spa and are really unwell and doing anything to try and make themselves feel better, of course, they'll eat whatever. But um, but if you're actually trying to get market share and going up against, you know, bacon and eggs and other kinds of breakfasts and stuff, then you got to make it taste good. Um, so WK eventually wins. Uh, he creates Kellogg cereal. So then there's the two competing cereal brands. And those are the first two cereal brands. And it's funny because they're still two of the biggest companies out there. Um, and a funny little detail to think about. And if you ever look in the grocery store again, you'll notice this and you'll never be able to unnotice this. The Can you picture the Kellogg uh, logo, the Mm -hmm. kind of the way it's written out? And WK would sign every box of cereal because he had one of their early marketing ideas was that they were the original and everyone else was a cheat, basically. And specifically, they meant CW Post. Uh, So he signed the boxes. So that Kellogg is a signature. It's like now it's like a, you know, stamp version of the signature. But originally that it's because it was actually the Kellogg signature. Because huh. um, it, it was their way of saying, we are the authentic ones. Everyone else is a knockoff. So clearly that explains kind of why it didn't stay in sanatoriums. Because, right. um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that description of it is not the most enticing. Um, <laughs> and obviously there's a kind of marketing element to this. There's also a sugar element to this. Yeah, um, definitely. But those two pieces alone, at least kind of what you've told us so far, to me, explain how it went from just being sanatoriums, just being specialty food store to being um, in supermarkets, doesn't fully explain to me kind of just how massive it really has become. So can you take us through sort of that stage of the national dominance, the international dominance? Definitely. One almost since the, if not even almost, since the very development of breakfast cereal, it went hand in hand with marketing. Just it, people invented new ways to advertise because of breakfast cereals. And they were always on the kind of cutting edge of marketing, advertising, product development, scientific ways to adjust flavors and uh, add nutrients to it for reason, you know, so that you could then market it as having nutrients added to it. Um, and it, that's an interesting discussion in, in itself, how cereal w- were involved uh, in um, the breakfast cereal companies got involved in health and and governmental policies for health for children. And, uh, you know, if you add these various vitamins and minerals, then you get rid of some childhood diseases like rickets or beriberi, you know, the different kinds of uh, diseases that governments, populations, uh, mostly in the Western world, in cereal eating countries say that breakfast cereal has been really responsible for getting rid of these diseases in children's health. Um, So, and that's interesting because it's not actually marketing. And yet, of course, it really helps to be able to say that your cereal does that. And then you put that, of course, on all your boxes and all your commercials and that kind of thing. But every kind of thing you think about with a box of cereal now came about and was used as a way to sell it, as a way to promote it, as a way to make it more appealing to people from, the, as you say, the Technicolor, the Fruit Loops, you know, the brightest kind of cereals you can think of to just the colors on the boxes. Um, so to walk through some of the historical points of that, you get, um, in the 1870s, we get our first, um, trademarked figure on a box of any kind. And that is the Quaker on a box of oats, that kind of round cardboard box of oats that happens uh, in the 1870s. And from then on people, and there's a move that where, um, it's an industrializing move and it's an urbanizing moment that's happening in history and so the kind of the corner store where everyone just goes and buys you know their fabrics and their staples and then they produce most of the stuff on their own little baby farms you know individual farms and stuff um that move is changing and people are moving into cities and um you know it's not just the the person that you are so familiar with and your family's always done business with there's more of a level of anonymity now so this idea of buying things in bulk and um, just kind of knowing where your stuff comes from no longer exists and people don't trust 
stuff just in bulk anymore. So the idea of packaging it and wrapping it up and covering it um, was seen actually as a safety measure. And then the Quaker company, American Cereal Company at the time, as it was known as, um, they could say, you can trust us because we are safe. And so we have taken all these various measures and we've made it safe so you can buy it in a box. But of course, once it becomes a unit that you can buy instead of just, you know, bulk scoops or something that you're buying out of a bin at the, you know, this kind of village shop, um, then they can market it. They can, you know, set the price, they can set flavors, and then there can be competition between other people boxing it. Um, but that's one of the reasons they came up with the idea of a Quaker was because he kind of looks like Benjamin Franklin. And that's such an important figure and a popular figure and people trust him and think he's so cool and, you know, that kind of thing. So they chose that figure. Um, then Kellogg, of course, is putting pictures on their boxes and, suggestions about how they're, you know, the health of it. And the, you know, there's lots of like slogans and information and uh, eventually puzzles and games and riddles and things to read as you're reading, you know, as you're eating your cereal and it's sitting there on the table, you can kind of read your boxes. Um, the next development that'll happen is like inserts that'll get put into the boxes of cereal. And of course we probably all are remembering the toy surprises that are happening in the cereal. So that starts way back in the post is the guy that he's kind of the genius of marketing. So if, you know, John Harvey is the reason that we have cereal post is really the reason that we have companies and, like, and cereal, you know, battles between Tony, the tiger and snap crack a pop and whoever. Um, so he, that he added recipe books. He added little brochures of his own, like, me, like his kind of autobiographical story. Those were actually called these little pamphlets he stuck in boxes of cereal were called um, Road to Wellness. And that's where T.C. Boyle got the name for his novel from. Um, in Just to give you a point of reference here. So in 1896, so this is very early on in the stage of, of the, you know, the battle between the different cereal companies. Um, Post spends almost $1,000 U.S., but in 1896 dollars, that's a lot in advertising. But in 1897, he sold over $260,000 US in post cereal products. So obviously that $1,000 turned into just, what? Okay, so 260 times <laughs> success. I, my math failed me there for a second. Um, but so he really emphasized that advertising will sell units and these units being boxes of breakfast cereal. Um, he got named Post, CW Post was named the Success Magazine Advertiser of the Year in 1903, for example. He just, he couldn't find a place, so this is the era of print media, so he couldn't find a place in print media that he couldn't stick an advertisement about Post, about, there were statements on the boxes of Grape Nuts, so he invents Grape Nuts in the late 1890s, um, and how it's so good for you and it's so good for your health and it'll get you flowing and all this kind of stuff. Um, then another important moment that um, is a biggie for the UK, I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> um, the Force Cereal. Do you remember Force Cereal? I don't, but for complicated reasons, I'm not the most expert on all things cereal. One reason I liked right. your book. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so in 1902, there was a, a cereal company that was competing against Post and Kellogg called Force Cereal, and they developed the first actual mascot. And he's more or less vanished now, but he lasted a lot longer in the UK than he did in the US. And his name was Sunny Jim. And he was down in the dumps, but then he started eating the this Force Cereal and he became, now he's known as Sunny Jim. And, and there's, there was a little jingle that went along to his story and a little figure, you know, cartoon little figure with a guy with a little cane, walking stick and stuff. Um, so that was the very first cereal mascot, 1902. And then of course that took off and it became, again, Tony the Tiger, Snap, Crackle, Pop, all these other, you know, Wito and all the different mascots that are all over the world. Um, and, uh, as, we're, as we keep going through, it just develops with the technology. And that's the thing is cereal is like hand in hand. So the advertising in cereal is so significant that every new technology, cereal is right there with how to advertise during it. So they had 
new uh radio when you know when radio came about they had serial programs um when there were then of course that just translated over to tv to cinema to social media now and the internet and it just keeps expanding and and you know however you know they're going to figure out a way to advertise in the media there's um they they're in the Guinness Book of World Records as like the biggest serial event. How many people are sitting at a how big of a table? Where in the world and and all eating one kind of cereal? You know they find all these kind of you know pop up events. However it is that you can that will be the best way to market a thing in the moment. Cereal knows it I, almost more than any other food. I mean McDonald's maybe is up there with cereal. It's a different kind of a market. Uh, you know franchise restaurants versus boxes of cereal but yes cereal is really there um and in the 1950s we got injection molding so um you know the develop the technology technological developments as well so you get invent uh, injection molding so you get the that's where the plastic toy surprises come about because it becomes much cheaper to make little things out of plastic and so then suddenly you can have whatever it is you want to have in in boxes of cereal um in the early 20th century, actually quite in the early, if it was at the 1904 World's Fair, um, they developed someone, uh, a guy named Anderson, developed a gun, a big machine that would you could that would while overheat the the grain of cereal and make it pop. And so every kind of cereal that you can picture that isn't like a nugget or a flake or a shredded wheat or something like that. Um, anything you know, corn pops or Cheerios or all those kinds of shapes. Those come about because of this in, this machine, this this popping gun is what they called it, um, and so that happens in the nineteen in the early nineteen hundreds. The plastic toy surprises, the different games and stuff on the back of boxes that that lasts through the eighties and nineties, but then eventually when kids start having TVs on and their especially their cell phones in front of them suddenly the breakfast cereal companies aren't putting stuff on the back of their boxes anymore so much because no one's going to be looking at the back, backs of boxes of cereal while they're eating cereal anymore. Uh, they're going to be looking at their phones. And so there's less of that now, except for in certain times when they'll do like promotions that are a nostalgia promotion or something, which, which does happen. And sometimes those get cross-listed. Like um, I think, I think it was both in the U S and the UK. Um, there was one where there were board game coupons in boxes of cereals. So you could eat these nostalgic cereals and then go and buy like um, Monopoly or something and have a coupon for Monopoly. And they're like, you're sitting around the table as a family eating cereal. You can also sit around the table as a family and play this board game and have this kind of moment without yourself, you know, put your cell phones down. Um, so those kinds of things are happening always. Yeah. So does that answer that? It does. No, I thought that was absolutely <laughs> fascinating to kind of realize just how closely intertwined um, these companies and these products were with nutritional technology, with um, like, as you said, the shapes, right? I never really thought about yeah. the shapes, right? Um, yeah. And then, of course, all of the advertising aspects. And that kind of led to my next question, which then helpfully you answered in the book. So could you tell us a bit about this? Um, cereals are, of course, they've they've spread from New York. They've spread from Michigan. Um, they're all over the US. They're in the UK, as we've mentioned. And realistically, they're pretty much everywhere, or at least a decent number of them are. Um, and so just like you've told us about how the cereals were kind of intertwined with impacting and impacted by changes in technology over time, how has the expansion of these particular cereals to a global audience changed the cereals themselves? Or has it just been, does it go out equally everywhere? Right, right. No, and it's it's fascinating. Mostly, it goes out equally everywhere. Um, mostly, I say. Uh, and it it also the global push for selling breakfast cereal happened almost instantly, as well as the marketing of it. It just anywhere that U.S. cargo ships went, boxes of cereal went with them, and so South Africa, Cairo, Hong Kong, you know, ship ports of call that that had business interactions with the U.S. and with Western Europe, um, almost instantly happened. Sometimes um, 
different countries would have a stronger relationship with one of the cereals that, you know, wasn't quite as popular in the U.S., let's say. So, for example, in the U.K., Force cereal was more popular for much longer. Um, But then also different companies, then as that market expanded and, and grew and went to different countries, then the countries would develop their own breakfast series, of course. So, um, and this was an interesting, actually, I'm going on a tangent here. Uh, historically, the, the legality of breakfast cereal and the, the copyright and the patenting of items and things like that that happens through breakfast cereal has been an interesting a historical element that I would not have thought to research, to be honest, except for one of my students actually picked up on it and was, uh, as she was helping me with some of the research. And um, so, so Lily Adams, I just name dropped you. Um, so for example, I, I mentioned how Kellogg is, was very litigious and, and had to change the name of granola to granola so that he wasn't going to be sued by Jackson. Uh, and then when he patented his flaked cereal and process of preparing same, and then almost the next minute, Post is out there making a flaked cereal and selling it. He sued, and he sued a guy named Henry Perky, who developed shredded wheat, which was another technology, but a very similar cereal, if you think about it, and stuff. And actually, so it turns out, you really can't patent cereal just as cereal. You know, you can patent one very particular version of it, but you can't. Um, so it really is kind of the Wild West. And people were just, if you could come up with a different shape, if you could come up with a different flavor profile, if you could come up with a different whatever, then that became your in into the market. And people were kind so anything, yeah, shapes, flavors, designs, how you cooked it slightly differently, all of those things happened. So we, um, so in Australia, uh, Ellen White, the Seventh-day Adventist that had been in Battle Creek, which was who Kellogg was working with when he developed the flake cereals, they ended up in Australia. Um, he broke up with the, the Seventh-day Adventists. They got in a fight over some of the food issues. And um, he, there really was no one John Harvey Kellogg didn't fight with by the end, really. Um, but so they actually started a community in Australia and um, developed their own breakfast cereals and food uh, items in a similar way that they were doing in Michigan and um, through buying up companies and developing their own and things like that, that's where Wheat Bix got started, which um, for reasons I'm not entirely sure about, by the time that got to the UK, it became Wheat Abix. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure why the name changed, but um, so in the, in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, it's considered Wheat Bix and that those you don't find in the U.S., for example. Those are cereals that are really popular in the British Commonwealth, but not so much in the U.S. Um, and uh, then different cereals just that are developed in the U.S., but just become more popular in other countries. Uh, like Now, these are starting to get... I, start, I have started seeing these in grocery stores here now, but in South Korea, the most popular cereal is something called Oreos O's. So it's like little O's, but made out of Oreo cookies, basically, instead of um, these are chocolate cookies, um, instead of like a, a cereal, <laughs> not even pretending to be a health food at this point anymore. It's a cereal made out of cookies. But, um, but those were, you know, the most popular brand that was being sold in, in Korea at the time, or one of the, one of the real popular ones. Um, but you couldn't really find it in the U.S., for a long time. And, and now it's starting to get seen here. But um, that it, it's just, it is really interesting how largely there's like around five basic cereals that are the ones that started it all. So, you know, cornflakes, grape nuts, so post with his little nuggets, grape nuts, um, shredded wheat, Weetabix, uh, Cheerios, you know, these are kind of the basic cereals. And those are the most fa- popular cereals all over the world, to the most part. I mean, there's these fun little exceptions like I was just describing. But, um, and it almost started instantly as they were getting developed and it remains to this day. They um, they just, and, and it's an interesting, I, I wonder about this. I wonder why the nostalgic ones, the really, really basic ones remain the most popular and not the super, super sweet ones, of course, are are fun and trendy and the kids want to eat them, but, you know, Largely, they're not allowed to by their parents. <laughs> Largely, those remain a treat and not just your normal breakfast cereal. Um, I don't know. Have you ever even eaten Fruit Loops or something? They're not exactly delicious. Like they're 
well, maybe that's it. Maybe they stop being delicious when we're adults. And so uh, we'd we like the idea of them, but we don't actually want to buy them anymore. You're just um, like, whoa, that's a lot of sugar. Yeah, maybe by the time we're able to buy our own cereal, our tastes have changed. Um, but that's very <laughs> much a reckon, uh, not scientific. So who knows? Um, right. I'd love to ask about kind of, in some ways, one of your core motivating ways into this book in the first place. The idea that you talked about at the beginning about um, food in culture, food in literature, food in the arts. Um, so how have cereal and porridges been incorporated in the arts and in literature? Um, and perhaps as part of that question, you could explain how you managed to condense what I'm sure were many, many, many examples of this into a discrete chapter. Yes, largely because my editor told me I had to. <laughs> but still, within that, how did you choose? Yes, they, that was that was challenging because I had many, 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 many more examples in the beginning. Um, but there are some there are some really, really standard ones, some kind of perfect examples. Like uh, one of the earliest ones I use in that chapter is Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Right? What does she eat in each? You know, the three different bowls of porridge that she eats before she finds the one that's just right. And um, so even in our like children's stories, peas porridge hot, you know, is, is this chi- child's rhyme that people know from forever. Um, and, and there was a, there's a fun little children's rhyme. Is it, is it in Czech? I believe that, uh, you know, and there's little finger gestures that go along. So you're tickling the baby, you know, while you're singing about porridge in the pan and stuff. Um, so the, these are uh, just kind of the, some of the earliest songs and stories and, and, things we hear about movies we watch are, are based around eating porridge, eating cereal, having the comfort of an oatmeal or a porridge or something like that. Um, it is interesting that these really, I mean, it's not interesting historically that they, they still be, they're still about porridge. You know, they're still about the comfort of the, the warm cereal, not the cold cereal so much. Now, of course, a, a story that was, developed before the invention of cold breakfast cereal that would explain that obviously why but um but it is interesting that you know there isn't one goldilocks and the three bears is still really really popular there isn't one where it's like goldilocks and the fruit loops or she's like this one has just the right amount of added sugar um and it really is every culture has those kinds of stories were in novels or uh, plays or films or something. There's a moment where the people need comfort, where someone's feeling sick. That's another thing about specifically porridges, but cereal in general, um, that popped up a couple of different times in, as I was researching this, that they're for breakfast, yes, but also when people feel kind of icky or you don't feel well, it's comfort food, right? So it's, you return to it in moments of, of when you need comfort food. Um, so there's one of the classic novels in China, uh, Dream of the Red Chamber. I am obviously putting this in translation because I'm going to have to. Um, Kanji shows up and, and women are trying to help a man who isn't feeling well. She tempts him with various kinds of kanjis, which is their version of a breakfast porridge, um, to, to make him feel better and stuff. So this is running throughout stories throughout the world. Um, that same kind of, of homey, loveful, you know, kind of, I don't know, hygge kind of a feeling <laughs> that happens with these porridges. But then also people have a sense of humor in their story, in their art and books and media about cereals. So an early, and this, have, it starts pretty early on in the history of the breakfast, the cold breakfast cereal market. Um, there's this fabulous story called Phil Boyd Studge, the story of a mouse that helped. And it's written by a British author named Saki, which is the pen name for H.H. H. Monroe. And it's published in 1911. So if you're thinking about the fact that serials are really happening in the 1890s, and this is already coming out in 1911, it's happening very shortly thereafter, that people are satirizing the breakfast cereal market, companies, advertising, the the idea behind it, what the actual quality of the product is. Um, and this story is all about the fact that it's a, he's, he's working, trying to market this kind of the cereal and it's called Philboid Studge, which is a really silly name. And, um, but how can he make it so that it'll sell better? So he's not selling it as much as the other, you know, the, the competing guys are. 
and they decide to market it as a way to not go to hell, <laughs> to be moral and to be just and to do everything right and be good and stuff. You have to eat this really disgusting cereal. <laughs> this very boring, bland, you know, not you don't want to eat it kind of a cereal. Uh, and there's this cute little quote from the story that it says, people would do things from a sense of duty, which they would never attempt as a pleasure. So <laughs> he's marketing this cereal as, uh, you know, the dutiful cereal that you need to have to make your family healthy and stuff. And so obviously it's a broad satire against the very market of cereals that is happening at the moment. Um, so that's fun that that's happening already by, you know, the early 1900s. And then, you know, the kind of satire, postmodern, um, kind of classic example of, of material culture, commentary, uh, Andy Warhol. So if you jump to the 1960s, you get an Andy Warhol exhibit um, that he puts together of the Kellogg's cornflakes boxes. So big, you know, the cardboard crates that would have a bunch of Kellogg's cornflakes, you know, individual boxes in them. He did installations where those boxes would just kind of get piled up in a corner in a museum. And that was that was the installation. That was the art. Um, and much in the same way, if you know Andy Warhol, you know, of course, the Campbell's soup can series. Um, so much in the same way that he's making commentary on the very, you know, market marketability and um, commodification of these kinds of things. The, the cereal is happening just as much as the Campbell's soup can is happening. Um, now, you wouldn't have seen a picture of that in my book, though, because the, it's uh, copyrighted. So I wasn't able to access it. So I can tell you about it. And I can tell you to Google to, to go on the internet and look it up because it's you can find these boxes and um, they're, they're cool. It's it's kind of satirical postmodern commentary happening there because, of course, because Andy Warhol and they're again, for, because they're Andy Warhol, they're wildly famous and popular and expensive. Um, I looked it up just before our talk and, uh, Christie's website listed a recent one in 2015 selling for $900,000 us So the, for a box, like a fake box of cereal. Wow. Um, so, yeah. okay, then. <laughs> yeah, which is totally in my wheelhouse. I could totally have bought that. But <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes. Um, all right. Well, and so then, then your, the future of uh, your life is not going to be, I assume, purchasing this box of cereal. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, you know, because I, I'm a gajillionaire, of course, but I, you know, I gotta prioritize buying boots or something instead. Fair I'm, enough. I'm kidding. I'm a professor. We do it for love, right? <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the art and literature examples in the book? Another real fun one that I found that, that has had a lasting kind of influence on me, there's all these fun festivals all over the world that are cereal-based. Um, and so, of course, Battle Creek has an annual festival for cereal, which they, they pretty much should because they're where it all got started. Um, and Battle Creek itself is you know referred to as cereal city of the world or breakfast capital of the world and all these kinds of, you know, they really play up the fact that uh, Battle Creek is where it all got started. Um, there's in Scotland, there's a really fun one that's a porridge making championship the, and the prize is the golden spurtle and a, a spurtle is a, a kind of kitchen implement that you would use to stir. Um, so the best porridge making of, you know, whoever makes the best porridge of the year, they get this, uh, this golden spurtle. Um, there's, so that one's kind of just fun and a little bit tongue-in-cheek. And then there's uh, quite serious and earnest festivals. So there's a Laba Kanji, the Eight Treasures Kanji that would happen in China for um, Chinese New Year. And it's based on a story about the Buddha who had been trying to go to starve himself for 40 days as a way to reach enlightenment. And then a girl comes up to him and is had and it was kind of this... This, it's, a, it's a narrative about the kind of end of season scarcity, but the, the joy that comes in the very simple um, elements. And so it's four nuts, four grains. So eight, you know, so there ultimately there'll be eight treasures and they're just, but they're simple, you know, it's rice, um, mung beans, uh, dried fruits, those kinds of things. And she offers it to the Buddha and he eats that. And he realizes that starvation is not the way to enlightenment and that instead, um, and he moves on to, to the more, 
the meditative version of, of reaching enlightenment. And he does successfully reach enlightenment later. Um, so that was a really cool festival. And every year to, to until now, you can line up at different um, Buddhist monasteries and they'll hand out bowls of uh, this eight treasures kanji. Um, and I've been making, since I found that out, since I did that research, uh, I've been making it myself just as a, it's a, it's a very fun, very comforting, um, lovely little porridge to make actually. Um, and it's a fun way to celebrate Chinese New Year. Yeah. Thank that you for fun. sharing those with us. Um, I think yeah. perhaps uh, some of the future of breakfast cereals clearly is uh, those festivals continuing um, with Definitely. all of their fun. Um, but what else do you think the future of breakfast cereal will look like and why? Right. Um, so it's interesting. The present of breakfast cereal, the, the, the kind of very now moment, um, is an interesting little moment because honestly, uh, people are not wanting to eat breakfast cereal quite as much. Well, and COVID threw this all into a, a bit of a spin. So up until COVID, there had been a downtick, a slight downtick in breakfast cereal on the global market because people had just decided, and this this says something about modern society, I think, that probably isn't great, that suddenly sitting down and eating a bowl of cereal was just too much to ask of us. And so you had to come up with like handheld cereal bars, right? So you get the granola bar or the muesli bar or something, and that became the, the development in the, in the kind of the now as a way to grab back that breakfast cereal market. Um, also, the big companies are trying to market to traditionally, uh, to cultures and countries that don't traditionally eat breakfast cereal for breakfast. Um, there's billions of people in the world and largely in the Asia Pacific region that eat savory breakfasts instead of these kind of overly sugarized breakfast cereals. Um, and they're, that's a huge market. And so all the main companies are definitely trying to break into that market and so they're trying to think of ways to make cereals more appealing and or make, yeah, makes, basically make cereals more appealing, whether through just sheer advertising and not having to change the product much at all. Or is there some way that you can make them slightly more savory or a flavor combination that's more familiar to people in Asia instead of, um, in Eastern Asia specifically and stuff, instead of what, what the US and the UK and stuff would be used to. Um, and that I think is definitely where the future of breakfast cereal, one of the places that the future of breakfast cereal is going is trying to break into these other markets and find ways and fruit food combinations and, and taste combinations that will work for a whole, you know, a, a large chunk of the world, basically of the population that at the moment is just like, no, thanks. We're not that interested. Um, and there's, they've celebrated small victories. I'm trying to remember which cereal it was. I think it was Weetabix, Wheat Bix, um, made it to some Chinese soapy, soap opera kind of drama TV show. And one of the characters was eating that box of cereal. And there was honestly a run on the market for that cereal. And so they, they enjoyed that. So is that kind of product placement going to be enough or will they have to actually change it to some of the flavors that are more... Um, in keeping like, um, you know, pandan based for the Philippines or something like that, um, or some, you know, South Pacific islands. So yeah, that's definitely like a, a realistic logistical place that the future of breakfast cereal is going to go for marketing. Um, now what I am enjoying thinking about is where it shows up in stories and movies and, um, you know, how they imagine cereal looking in the future. So, and that seems to go a couple of different ways. And if you think about movies you've seen over the last 20 years or something, you can probably see some examples of this as well. Like in the matrix, you know, people are eating a kind of neo porridge. It's there for nutrients sake. It's not there to be enjoyed. It's just the food that you're putting in your body to kind of, you know, keep yourself going. Um, there's a kind of post-apocalyptic vibe to some of these future cereals, if you will. Uh, and of course, one of the examples being Soylent Green, which of course is like the most dramatic example of that happening, of this kind of unpalatable porridge that just keeps people going. Um, but so that seems to pop up in science fiction films a lot, this, this kind of a, like a post-apocalyptic porridge. Um, but then also, if you think about examples in, in films and TV shows and stuff, there's that 
pill version where, so then if you think about the Jetsons, right, and you, you have a pill and you put it in the microwave or something and it comes out and it's a turkey dinner, you know, and so there's that idea of cereal as well, where you, you have a pill and you, you do it and it poof, expands into a, the best bowl of cereal you can think of and you just, and your perfect little cup of tea. And um, so those are things that people are imagining happening in, um, as, as we imagine, you know, far out kind of future cereals. Uh, I don't know if I'm down for pill-based foods <laughs> <laughs> or for the unpalatable porridges, to be honest. Mm. Um, but they're fun to think about. So They definitely um, are. Yeah. And one of the ones I, I am seeing happening right now, and I don't see this lessening anytime soon, I see it expanding, if anything, um, is another push for cereal so if you can't, if you can make it happen, you know, these are the companies that thinking here, um, if they can bring it out to different parts of the world, great, you know, that's more people buying it. And the other way to expand markets is to have it not just be for breakfast anymore, to have it be kind of a fourth meal snack food inserted wherever you need it kind of a moment. And I see that happening too. Um, and definitely, and they aim at college students a lot for this. Uh, and since I work at a university, this, you know, this fits, um, and if you've noticed, there'll be, you know, you get your cafeteria meal times, but let's say outside of meal times, a lot of times, more and more you'll see, they just leave the cereal bins up kind of all the time. And then there's like a big milk dispenser as well. And so you can kind of grab a bowl of cereal whenever, and it doesn't just have to be when the cafeteria, you know, the lunch rush or whatever at the cafeteria. And so that I think is a is a very good way and a very strategic way to market it to students that are studying late or that had you know slept in and missed the breakfast time specific time um, and all that kind of thing. And then of course, if they remember cereal as being a thing that maybe you eat for dinner instead of for you know just for breakfast or you eat it you know before you go to bed or before you do your late night study session or in my in my life that would be the late night grading session of course but um you know if cereal can take the place of that kind of a meal and it's very you know of course it's very simple you just all you need is the bowl of the box and the in the milk and you don't have to prepare a whole lot and that's one of the beauties that's always been the case for cereal is this is one of those things that you know even a kid can do it that's one of the reasons that breakfast that's another one of the reasons that breakfast cereal was so popular it, since the beginning is you can't trust a little kid to make porridge because hot and stoves and all this kind of stuff. But you can trust a little kid to pour a box of cereal into a bowl, pour some milk into the bowl and then take care of their own, their self for breakfast. And then, you know, so that actually when both parents are going into the workforce and everyone's gotten real busy in the, in the morning and stuff, that was another really important moment for cold breakfast cereals. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that's going to take off and is taking off and will just continue to do so. Um, is this idea of cereal becoming this meal that you eat throughout the day. And that is wildly ironic. And sorry, I think I just cut you off there. Um, but it, there is a, an element I am noticing of a full circle that is happening in terms of the world and the history of breakfast cereal. And if you think about the, the ways that porridges were used as the food that you fed to the laborers, all times of the day. And it just was like the kind of standard meal that would get them through. And that's how they built the pyramids and how they did all the work and stuff was through these very sustaining porridges. And now we have this idea of like even cold breakfast cereal, but that you would eat it throughout the day and it would be the food that would get you through that next round of work and stuff. So yeah, full circle there. Very full circle. <laughs> um, well, as we circle round towards the end of the interview, that's my attempt at a segue. We'll see how, how successful done. that yeah. was. Um, <laughs> I've obviously been, I found a bunch of things in the book sort of, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's quite surprising. Um, but you're obviously the expert in this. Uh, take us behind the scenes. Was there anything in particular that you found surprising in the process of researching or writing this? There were a couple of things that, because again, I knew, I knew a little bit about Kellogg and then, um, you know, finding out more about him is, is always fun because he's wacky, but that's kind of, his wackiness is kind of well known by now. Um, but, but there were certain things like the idea of breakfast itself being like a technological advancement was fascinating to me. The idea that until you could prepare foods and store them and that kind of stuff, you would just eat whatever you could harvest until then. That was just 
fascinating. I mean, it's it's hard to even imagine <laughs> me waking up and not just going to the kitchen, you know, and just getting started. Um, another one was there was this fun little moment, and I had mentioned a minute ago about how COVID had actually so so the breakfast cereal industry had gone down recently, but uh, COVID actually bumped it right back up. Um, so it turned out that when we were all staying at home and not going out to work and stuff, people had more time and they had more time for breakfast. And so there was a, a real big boost in breakfast cereal purchasing because of COVID. And um, to the to the extent that here in the U.S., um, in 2020, there was a run on post-grape nuts. And now I can't remember. Do you all have post-grape nuts in the UK? I think you do not. I've looked them up. They don't okay, seem yeah. the most enticing thing, to be honest. No. No. <laughs> they're, they're, um, the, I think the closest would be kind of a Weedabix kind of a feel. Um, but just they're smaller. They're little nuggets. Um, and um, they're nutty. They're made... <laughs> one of the funniest things about them, they're called grape nuts, and they're Post's great contribution to the, to the world of breakfast cereals. Um, but they are neither made of grapes nor nuts. <laughs> okay, because that was confusing me, I must admit. <laughs> I enjoyed that moment as well. He, he he used a cereal called Maltose and he called it grape sugar. And so that was where the grape came from. And he thought that the toasted wheat had a nutty flavor. And so that was where the nuts came from. But yeah, there's no nuts in it. It's just wheat. But, um, and so it's been a very... It's it's crunchy. It's a little bit sweet. It's not very sweet though. In the in the world of sweet sugar, sugary cereals and stuff, um, and uh, it's a great addition to things. Like it's great to put on top of your yogurt or to just add a little bit of crunchy nuttiness and stuff to it. I, I actually like it fine, but it, it would be weird to have just a bowl of grape nuts alone for me. I, I wouldn't mm. necessarily enjoy that as much. Yeah, that's what I was imagining. Um, I was also imagining right. that they were grapes and nuts. So you know, there are a lot of things wrong with my mental image. It turns out. <laughs> and Post would have had fun with that, of course. <laughs> um, and uh, so, but there was a huge run on the market for that specific cereal um, and they ran out. So between them not realizing there'd be such a big run on the market and then having to close factories for a while because of that, you know, in the early stages of COVID when stuff was shutting down for weeks at a time and then months at a time and et cetera, uh, they just, they ran out of boxes of grape nuts and um, there became a robust black market trade in boxes of grape nuts and you could buy them for like a hundred dollars on ebay and just which is strange because these are you know picture your you know two biscuits of wheat weetabix and and just would you be willing to pay a hundred dollars for that you know probably not you know probably you're like i will move on to something else toast is also a good breakfast cereal or breakfast food but um no so that there was this big run on the market for those and it got to the point where then, of course, everything got back up to pace and it was fine. And so Post, as a thank you, they if you could find the receipt of how much you spent on your box of cereal, they would reimburse you that money. Uh, they had prizes as thank yous for people that had their cute little stories about, you know, what, what links they went to to get the kind of cereal. I mean, this is the kind of stuff marketing. I mean, sheesh, you couldn't pay for this kind of marketing. <laughs> um but yes, so, and I found it fascinating, and it remains one of the most fascinating things about this whole project, is just the, the older ones, the older ones are the ones that remain the, the, the popular ones, and the most, the, the, the favorites, people aren't going for, you know, we like the novelty of the monster cereals, or the, you know, Frankenberry, and that kind of stuff, but we don't actually want to eat them, we eat Cheerios, and granola, and, mm. um, you know, Cornflakes. Yeah, corn and, and cornflakes. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. And um, thank you for yeah. sharing those with us. And thank you for clearing up the great nops question. Um, that's yeah, very useful I intelligence. Um, it's an important information. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, hopefully <laughs> this will also be uh, important information. Um, I don't really know what one could do after writing a book about breakfast cereal. I mean, what else could be quite so bright and shiny? Um, but is there something you're looking to work on next, whether or not it's about cereal, whether or not it's a book that you'd like our audience to be aware of? 
Right. Well, thank you for asking. Um, I, it will definitely not be shiny in the same way that the breakfast cereal has been shiny. Um, but I am. But it is kind of building off of some of the things I was noticing as I was researching this project. Uh, I'm I'm interested in how people are imagining food in the future. So these science fiction visions of, of Ooh, future the pills. And, yes. Yes. And you know why? Why is that where our head goes when we think of what food happens in the future? Um, so that is what I'm working on right now. There's a couple of books, uh, if you guys have read them, like Parable of the Sower, which is this young adult post-apocalyptic kind of a book mm-hmm. where um, she eats something called, she eats acorn bread. And of course, acorns are a thing that exist, but um, but we don't tend to put them in bread, right? We don't tend to eat them. We tend to think of them as squirrel food or something. So why is it that acorns become a thing in this time of scarcity that is disgusted and is delicious, you know, and, and she loves it. And it's a food she really likes and stuff. Um, and then in the, in Margaret Atwood's this Canadian author, Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy, they actually bioengineer a whole different kind of subspecies of humans that can eat kudzu, which do you guys have kudzu in the UK? Um, I'm not familiar with don't. it. Yeah. I think you're probably not warm enough to get it. Um, it's a very invasive species here in the U S that is just kind of taken over and it's, you know, only going to take over more as it goes. And it's, uh, it's actually palatable. You can, you could eat it like spinach or something. It would be fine. Um, but we don't think of it that way. We think of it as, as a bad plant that you want to get rid of, not as something you could eat. But so in the, in the book, people are eating kudzu plants. Um, so yeah, why is it that, so just the reasons behind why this is where different artists brains go when they're imagining future foods. And the working title for this new project is imagining tomorrow's bread. So Okay, well, when that becomes a book, hopefully, um, we will have you back and you can tell us all about what people imagine future food is and why. Um, But in the meantime, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which again is titled Breakfast Cereal, A Global History, published by Reaction uh, in 2023. Casey, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been great. 